Good morning. Can Tim Jones bust it out on the piano or what? You should see it. Like, I come in sometimes and he comes in and plays like when I'm working. And I'm like, what is going on in the sanctuary? And it's just Tim in here sitting by himself and he turns off all the lights. It's kind of creepy, man. I mean, we didn't talk to you about that. Um, no, it's good. Like I said, I am not Tom. He's out of town this week. He's in California working and showing his daughter some colleges. So um, we'll be praying for them, <laughs> mainly Quincy. Um, no, I love Quincy to death. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today. If you need a Bible, there's probably one under your chair, but if it's a really small one, it's not going to help you because that's only the New Testament. But we do have some um, bigger Bibles with the whole thing in there. So if you need one, just raise your hand. Our shows will bring you one. Um, also, the words will be up on the one screen that is currently working. Um, so sorry about that, but um, we'll have that fixed hopefully next week. All right. Um, you are actually taking part in part two of a series that we started on Easter Sunday. Um, we're taking just a three-week break, including Easter, from our Acts series. Um, we're not dropping the Acts series. We're going to pick right back up in it. We're, we just got done studying Pentecost, and we're going to continue through the whole book of Acts. We just decided it would be a good time to maybe cover some just basic, really biblical truths and then dive back into it. We've been in it for, I don't know, five, six weeks, and we, have, we just hit chapter two. So we're on a blazing pace, and at this rate, we should be done with it, and I figured it out in just under three and a half years. So, um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you know, um, we're, we're, we're not bound by anything. So we'll take a couple breaks like this here and then through this series because, well, if it takes us that long, you guys are going to be ready for a few different things every once in a while. So that's what's going on here. But um, part two in this series is the fall. We're going to be looking at the fall man today. Um, pretty important. Um, I, I was joking with Tom before he left. He's like, oh, always leave me at the fun ones. Don't get this right. The rest of it doesn't make sense. Um, thanks for laying that on me before you leave town. But, uh, no, it, it, um, you know, last service, I didn't make fun of Tom once. I know. Isn't that incredible? I can't even think of anything. He's just a good guy, so maybe he'll escape this time around without being made fun of at all while he's out of town. Um, but we're in the we're setting the fall today, and and before we dive into that, um, here's one of the reasons I think this is so important. Um, well, one, I feel like a lot of these stories, like like Genesis chapter three, we reserve for like little kids. Which, by the way, just remember, if you didn't know, there is no children's church today. We do that once a month. So if you're waiting for your kids to go running off, there's nobody there, and they'll be sitting up there by themselves. Um, they were supposed to tell you that when you came in, but. Uh, but but w- w- with children, um, don't go. No, there's no children's church. I'm just joking. I scared them. Um, uh, the reason I say this is, it's fun for kids, right? Like we take stories like this, and, and we and we really oversimplify them sometimes, which is good for kids. But then we just like leave them for the kids, and as adults, we don't really revisit them, and that's. That's just wrong. It's, it's not good. I mean, it's, um, th- there's some really heavy stuff in here that we're going to go over today. And the other reason I think this is just greatly important is that, well, there's a lot of reasons, but if we don't get this right, the rest of the book just doesn't make sense. Nor does life. 
You know, I, I've been blessed to get to work in multiple mission fields. And, and you know, us here at Bethany, when we say mission fields, usually we, we, we say everybody's a missionary. We, we, we don't like the term that we have a missions department. We all, if you believe in Jesus, work for him in the sense, in your mission field where you work. But what, what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about in the sense of kind of a... Uh, in a broad sense, going to another country, going and serving somewhere. And I've been really blessed to get to go to a few different places. I've gotten to go to Africa. I've gotten to go to Eastern Europe and, and work at different places and do things. And in all of that travel, I've found two consistencies when people come back from mission work. One, and this is the one that I, that, that I pray for, for missionaries, is they come back a lot of times, and, and this was hit me harder than ever before when I came back from Africa and worked in orphanages and, 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 I, and, I, and I was holding babies that I knew that if I came back next year at that time would not be alive anymore because they all had AIDS, you know? And so, like, I came back and, and, I, and I knew something. And, and what I knew was this, is I knew something wasn't right. It, I mean, at the most basic, primal level, it wasn't right. You come back with the sense that it's like, this is not how it's supposed to be. And it bothers you. I mean, missionaries are the most annoying people in the world because they are obsessed with what they have. I mean, they drive us crazy because we don't understand a lot of time what they've seen and what they've gone through. Hello. (laughs) Um. I thought I was getting attacked. I was like, <laughs> really upset about the children's church thing, apparently. Um, <laughs> no, but, but in all seriousness, you know, I, you, you come back and, and, and you go, something's not right here. I mean, just, and, and I'm sure you've experienced that, even if you've never done that, going into the mission, mission field isn't reserved for that kind of thing. It's turning on the news, and you just watch it, and you just like... It's hard not to get depressed at times, isn't it? I mean, there's genocide here. There's people killing each other here. There's economic situations all over. I mean, it's just, it's, it's heavy. You know, and, and, and you just know that it's not right. And, and my, I pray that my response will always be, God, use me to, to, to restore. I, I, want, I, I know that you have a plan of restoration for all of these things. And I know you have a plan that is just great and beautiful, and, and, and God, please use me to be part of it, because I know this isn't something that you wanted. That's the key. God does not desire those things. God does n- never desires evil. He doesn't. It's, it, it, he can't. It's impossible for him to, to desire that. Or your other response is this, and, and I have friends who've worked in the mission field now work for secular nonprofits because they couldn't answer that question with God. And, and then they come back and they say things like, there's no way that a God could do that. I can't believe in him. And you know what? I mean, it's easy for us sitting here right, right now to go, oh man, they just missed it. They just need to read Genesis chapter 3 like we're going to study right now. And they'll figure out. It's totally different when you're in it, when you see it, when you feel it, when you touch it, when you smell it. I'm sure, I mean, like experiences I've never had. I have friends who are in the military. Things that they tell me, you know, and the struggles that they have. Like, I don't understand that. 
You know, there are times when those questions will be so heavy and so weighty. Right now, I'm going through um, an assessment process for an organization. It's kind of like a seminary, but they assess young pastors, and they tell me whether I should be a pastor or not, which is kind of funny because I already am. So if they say no, I'm like, okay. Um, I don't know what I do from there, but hopefully they say yes. But one of my questions, I've been filling out all this paperwork, just tons and tons of paperwork, and just writing pages and pages and pages of stuff. And I got, to, I got to one question, and it was probably one of my shortest answers. And it said, as a pastor, you get a phone call. And every pastor's gotten this. I'm sure some of you have gotten this. That phone call And you have to go into the hospital because somebody lost their child. What do you do? And you are their pastor. They belong to your church. It was one of my shortest answers. He said, very simply, I pray that I've been a good pastor. I don't start pastoring then. I pray that I've taught my people and the people who go to our church how to suffer well. How to take tragedy. How to take things and not because... Isn't that scary to anybody else that when tragedy hits amongst Christians, what do we do? We say things like, um, how's their faith? As if your faith should go downhill when tragedy happens. That is not the Bible. It's not what it teaches. I mean, look at Peter. He, I mean, he, he got crucified, and, he, and he, said, he said, I'm not even worthy to be crucified the same way as my Savior, so crucify me upside down. That is somebody who understands suffering, right? Martyrs, people who, who, who go the distance. And when I say the distance, I mean the ultimate distance for their faith. So I wrote my answer. I was like, I pray that I've been a good enough pastor that they know how to suffer well. And that they know that is not God's desire. That what he created originally did not have sin, did not have death, did not have genocide, did not have war, did not have hatred, did not have divorce. I mean, I could just go down the list, right? We've got to stop responding when it happens. And that's the goal of today. Is that we'll have a better understanding of what this looks like. Of how this goes. <laughs> I love that, man. People are just going through. So, let's start. I went way long in the last service. So, hopefully, we haven't even hit the scriptures yet. Um, so, <laughs> let's do this thing. Let's go. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from from any tree in the garden? Okay, stop right there. Bible trivia time. Who is Satan? I mean, I just give you the answer. Who's the the serpent? It's Satan. Okay, that's, that's, that's who it is. I'll give you a freebie, okay? There's going to be more questions. Give you a freebie there. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. You, are, you already went through a service, man. You're cheating anyways. <laughs> like, so, Satan is a serpent. And this is the first time in biblical history that we have Satan just blatantly lying and trying to deceive. Interestingly enough, and I don't really know what this means, but I did some research on this text, a lot of it, and I just dug into it. But interestingly enough, um, the serpent, when it says God, it doesn't even actually use like the full name of God, the real name of God, Yahweh. He won't even say it. It's actually our interpretation is a little bit off. So serpents won't even say God in the proper way. 
it's more, it would be more accurate with like a lowercase g is how he says God, not a capital G. I don't know what that means, but I found, I found it really interesting when I found that out. Lesson one from this. Satan will always try to manipulate the word of God. That's what he does. He does it really well. I'm always really weary of people who like um, are, are way like like um, uh, basically spiritual warfare is alive and real. But I always get weary around people who act like walk with a swagger when they talk about spiritual warfare, as if they have some great grasp on it, other than Jesus. Like that they have all the answers on how to battle with the enemy. Because here's one thing we can learn from this story today: is that Satan's really stinking smart, and he's been around for a long time. I get weary when people refer to themselves defeating them and, and, and the word Jesus isn't used very frequently in their sentences. Just be careful of that when, when you deal with spiritual warfare. So this is the first recorded lie. We see it coming. It's building right now in that story when he says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Verses 2 through 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Question two, is she right? Did she quote God correctly? For the most part, she missed one spot. God never said, Don't touch the tree. He said, Don't eat of it. So she, she kind of does right, doesn't she? she her response is, is um, yeah, God said, don't, you can eat from any of the trees. He didn't say don't eat from any of them, but he only said don't eat from this one. And then she just, for whatever reason, I really have no idea why, she just tacks on the sentence. And he said, don't touch it. We can overlook things like this, but I think this has some actual deep implications in just studying this and praying over this and reading this. I got really convicted on this. How many times in my life do I take things God calls me to do or take things that God says to me and I add my own little something to it? I should know that's wrong. The Bible teaches me clearly that you should not add or take away from the word of God. And that's why, you know, it's really interesting. I shared this with the last service. I had somebody come to me a few weeks ago and say, I really like Bethany, but I have two, two major complaints. And I said, okay, what are they? And they said, one you guys read way too much of the Bible in your, in your messages. I was like, okay. And then number two, they said, you guys talk way too much out of Jesus. Nine out of ten times is all you talk about. And I said, I'm sorry I disappointed you. We'll shoot ten out of ten next time. I promise. <laughs> the word of God should not be added to or taken away from. She made a mistake here. She really did. I don't know why she added it, but I find myself doing similar things. Let's move on. Verses 4 through 5. Here it comes. Satan says this. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan directly contradicts what God said. He directly lies and contradicts the word of God. 
Satan is really good at something. He speaks half-truths. You know what half-truth is? It's like when somebody like tells you something that's partially true, but the rest of it's a lie. Satan's really good at that because it sounds okay. At first, but here, here's the crazy thing, and this just dawned on me this week when I was going over this, is this, is that he's, he tells them what? That they can be like who? God, right? Who are they created in the image of? God. They already are. It's completely ridiculous. It's a flat-out lie. He's trying to make them want to be something that they're not. He's saying, you can be like God. And they go, oh, wow. But they forget that they are created in the Creator's image. That they already are like God. Isn't that I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I had never actually thought of that before. What, what else do they have? They have rule and authority over like, well, like all the animals, right? They have all of this responsibility to guard the garden, to, to, to take care of it. They are a lot like God already. And Satan is sitting here speaking to them, telling them, if you do this, you can be like God. He lies. Their pride took over, didn't it? It really does. That's like just one of the greatest sins that we have. You can see that um, many, many, many ancient theologians talk about how pride is the root of almost all sin. And it's interesting because we live in a culture where pride is sought after, you know, like self-help. Do this. Take care of yourself. Do these kinds of things. And, and, and let me get something straight here. I'm not knocking like, you know, I mean, if you're... Or an athlete, you know, you have pride in your team and that kind of... Those, those aren't bad things, but it's an understanding of when all of a sudden you start putting those pride things above where God is. That's exactly what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to say, hey, I can make you like God. And all of a sudden, everything God's given them just isn't good enough. Everything that they have, all the gifts, all the blessings, they're living in paradise, people. They are naked and very happy about it. I'll stay PG today, don't worry. I know the kids are here. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was where? With her. Let's get that straight. And he ate it. Guys, I'm just going to go ahead and apologize. You're going to get beat up a little bit today. In a good way. A really edifying way. And and some of you guys, because we are going to talk a little bit about marriage today. I know a lot of us in here... A lot of us, I'm not one of them, I am married. Um, a lot of you in here who aren't married may go, that's not for me. It is. Pay attention. How you treat women and how we handle our role as men is very, very important. She forgets about the trees around her, doesn't she? It's like, it's like seriously, like, like Eve's peripheral vision just shuts off. <laughs> 
And she focuses in on the one thing she shouldn't do. And we can take this and we can go, man, how did she do that? And we've got to be really careful in these kinds of stories. Why? Because we can play this role, this game, and this is not a good game. If I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, you would have. Or, no. Or, or, like, I found myself studying this this week and getting really mad at Adam. I was mad at him. That doesn't make any sense. I'm no better. So let's, let's just be careful of that. But she forgets about everything around her. Now, how often do we do that? Do we focus on what God has not given to you? What God has not given to us? He's given us so much, right? I mean, we, we, I mean, we just need to realize that, especially sitting here today, where you are, that if you live in America, you fall in the top 1% of wealthiest people that have ever walked this planet. And I'm talking about wealth there. I'm not even talking about health. He's given us so much, but so often, I know, I know in my case, it's like, my, it's like I focus on the tree that I can't have. The one I'm not allowed to have. The one God said, that's not for you. And men, I bet you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Married men, the woman that is not your wife that you are looking at is not for you. What comes across your computer screen is not for you. Ladies who see another man who's married to another woman and say, I wish my husband was more like that, he is not for you. I could go down the list, couldn't I? How many things do we focus on that is not for you? And why is that such a big deal with all the blessing that we do have? Second part of that verse, the man blows it. He really blows it. If, if you... If you look in your Bibles, you, you can do an hour on your own time. It's fine. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God lays out that the man is supposed to be the keeper or, or in other translation, to guard. And what does he do? He stands by like a coward and does nothing. How many guys have this little thing in their head that they really hope comes true someday? And maybe I'm just speaking, okay? Like my wife, like, I, I want nothing bad to ever happen to her. But I have this little thing in my head where, like, I have this thing, like, for whatever reason, she's, like, the nicest person in the world. I don't know why anybody would be talking smack to her. But some, some guy is, like, talking bad to my wife, and I get the roll up and be like, hey, man, what are you doing? You know, like, get in his face. And, and, and him be like, you better back up, you know. And I'm just like, no. He talks to my wife. And, like, he, like, tries to, like, go after her for some reason. But, like, I knock him out in the process. Like, in, in this dream, my face is painted, like, Braveheart, you know. And I'm standing over his body yelling. And all of this kind of stuff happens. Am I the only guy in here that's ever kind of had that little secret, like, thing? Yeah, isn't it? Like, but, oh, man. Like, I... All right, I don't want anything to happen to you. I really don't want that to happen, I promise. But, like, I had this dream of, like, protecting, of, like, fighting for my wife or fighting for women and doing that kind of thing and being a man and standing up. But the truth of the matter is most of us men won't do anything that will act just like Adam did. 
We'll be quiet. What's happening here? Satan just walked into his house. And he did nothing. He was a coward. We love, we, we, we love you ladies to death, but we, we do always say here that this gospel, this message, we need, we need godly men. Tom said it best in the Man Up series. He said, we don't need any more males. We need men who will fight for what is right. Who will defend because they've been called to defend. Not men who will respond like Adam and stand by why Satan ruins their home, their family, their friends, their parents, every aspect. I don't care if you're married or not, men are called into leadership. The biblical mandate that you have. And here in this case, Adam doesn't do it. He sits by quietly. Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. Okay. Um, some of our youth know this, like, that I really, this is one of my big dreams. So when I get to heaven someday, that there is a video library that you can go and you can check out moments in biblical history and put them in the DVD player and watch them. This is one of my top five. <laughs> Just watch them go, whoa. You know, like, I mean, I don't know what happened there. But it just says their eyes were open and then they knew it. I don't know what's going on. Like, I know what's going on. Like, I can read about it. There's lots of stories like that. Wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine that? Maybe if we all, like, pray about it enough, we'll get there and we'll be there. Um, but, what? Am I the only one who has a brain that works this way or what? But, uh, but, 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 but their eyes are open, right? And they're scared. We won't go into detail there. <laughs> Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out, where are you? Okay. Let's stop here. This is kind of funny. Because how many of you guys, when, when you are little... Would, if you did something and like you heard your mom or your dad coming and you knew you were busted, you would run and you would hide somewhere really obvious, but you thought it was great like under the covers and like they wouldn't notice the massive lump, right? That's what Adam and Eve do here. They run and they hide behind a tree. And not only, they're not even just hiding from like a parent, they're hiding from God. That's how insane this whole thing is. The shame. Did you see it? Because if you read before this, this doesn't exist. The sense of literally, oh my God. It doesn't exist. Do you see it creeping into humanity right here? Where the fracture has happened and, and, and they're ashamed. And they're hiding behind trees now. And they're naked and they're sewing clothes together out of leaves. With just a few hours beforehand, they were in paradise and everything was perfect. Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, this is God, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Okay, these questions from God are not like, did you do this? They're like, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? You know, do you know the difference there? He knows the answer. Verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. That's not good. That's bad. That's really not a good thing. Not only does he blame the woman for what he did wrong by neglecting his responsibility, but he blames God. He's like, the woman you put here with me. You put her here. You handle it, man. But, but we know that's not true, right? If you remember from the Man Up series when Tom spoke on this, what did he say? Like, remember the time when, when Adam's like naming the animals and then woman comes along? He's like, sheep, dog, goat, mine, because that's what woman means in the Hebrew. He was pretty excited then. <laughs> he didn't have a problem with it then. But all of a sudden now, it's like, you put her here. She, she did it. Not a good call from Adam. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They both don't accept anything that they did. As Christians, we are called to repentant lives, aren't we? Lives of deep repentance, lives of when we blow it, to come before God humbly, drop onto our knees and beg for his mercy because we don't deserve it, but he gives it freely. We can laugh at them for blaming it on other people, but how many of us right now sitting here today are sitting in a situation that we shouldn't be in, that we haven't confessed to God, and that we haven't repented of, and that we probably need to go ask somebody for forgiveness for We're really not all that different. Other thing that's interesting here in this text, who does God ask for when he walks into the garden? He asks for the man. Men, he asks for you. When it goes wrong in your home, it may, may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. If Jesus were to come to my house today because of something stupid that I did, but she could come for a lot of things. And he knocked on my door and Ari opened the door. He'd say, hi, Ari, how are you? Is Matt home? She'd probably stand there in shock and faint or something. But the point is, is that he, if he came to my house, he would knock and ask for me. Yes, there are situations, men, that you can't control. There are things that will happen, but you are responsible. It falls on the man. Verses 14, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. And you will eat dust all the days of your life. 
And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Pay attention to this. This is really important. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There is no way, just by the way, so you understand this, for me to cover everything that's in the scripture that we're studying today. It's huge. But I will focus on the bottom part of that scripture for right now. I'm going to give you a big word, and then I'll explain it. Don't worry. What this is called is it's called the proto evangelium. I just said it totally wrong, but it's a big word, and I didn't know what it meant until a couple of days, so I'm not that smart. So, when he says, this is God speaking to the serpent, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, it's speaking of Jesus. It's the first time in the Bible that Jesus is spoken of. He says, what you've done is evil, and you're going to pay for it. And at some point, I'm going to send my son and he will crush you. It's the first time the gospel ever gets made mention of in the Bible. It's pretty harsh, too. I'll keep it PG, but he says, I mean, well, you can read it. He will crush your head. God is not happy with that. And we live by that promise. Do you understand that? Okay. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your, your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Any moms in here, is that true? Okay, so we know truth is being spoken here today. I'm sure there's some people that can attest to that in here today. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What does this mean? I'll tell you what this means. It means that there will be conflict between man and woman. That it's going to be tough. The one, if you read deeper into this, it's basically saying this. It's saying that the woman will try to rule over her husband. And at times the husband will be submissive and he'll, and he'll blow it. And then there will be times when he responds in the wrong way. And there will be conflict in marriage. It's saying that if you decide to get married, it's going to be really stinking hard. It says that it is going to be one of the most difficult things. That man and woman will not get along like they have in the first couple chapters. That love is not just a convenience. That you are going to have to work really, really hard to make it work. Verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's a bunch of words. Bunch of stuff going on there. What this is saying is that even the good things that you meant, we covered this once before, even the good things, even the things you really want to accomplish, everything that you try to do, it will war against you. 
How many of us know that to be true? Because, man, we're cultivators, right? This is what God's saying. He's like, I've made you to want to cultivate. It explains why I played golf one time, and now I own every golf gadget you could ever buy. We'll get a hobby, and we'll build a shed because we need something to put all of our stuff that we bought for that hobby in that shed. We want to build things bigger. We want to do things right. We want to, we, we, we want to make it go faster. We, we, I mean, I don't know about you, but that's me. And God's saying, when you do that, even the good things are going to be really, really hard for you, and they're going to war against you. You're going to try to love your wife really well, and there's going to be times when it's not going to go so good. You're going to try to raise your children in a godly home and help them know Christ, but it's going to go bad at times. Even when you're trying to accomplish the very best. It will war against you. This is a little deeper than a kid's story, isn't it? And then just the total humble pie at the end, dirt wins. That's what I just put here in my notes. From dust you came to dust you're going to go. You were supposed to live forever how you are. But because of this, you're going to go back to dirt. The very thing you try to cultivate and grow things up out of, that's what I made you out of, and that's what you're going to go back into. Puts us on a pretty low level if we thought we were really important, doesn't it? Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made, garment, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I love this. It's like we have this whole thing where he's handing out punishment, basically, right? He's giving out this massive punishment, but then he's like, here's some clothes. God shows grace for his people even from the very beginning when they blew it. They're scared and naked, and he clothes them. Verse 22, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Why did God kick them out? Well, the obvious answer is they sinned. The ultimate answer is to protect them. If they were to eat from the tree of life, they would have lived in that state of sin forever. Jesus Christ wouldn't have been able to come and die for our sins and be forgiven and live in eternity with Jesus. The punishment was done out of love. Can we please see that today? Because so many of us, now, we've, we've morphed this love thing into this thing that if, like, well, God kicked them out, then how is that loving? He knew what had to happen to protect them. Right? I mean, I've, I'm looking over here. i got some of my high school guys from my small group. I tell them things all the time not to do. And it's not because I don't want them to just do things. I don't want them to get hurt. Right? And that's just the, the tip of it. I'm sure if you're a parent, you understand that far greater than what I do. God kicked them out of the garden because he loved them that much. 
that he wanted them to be saved. I'm way out of time, so I'm going to skip out of I'm going to skip over a few verses, but uh, I'm going to tell you them. And, and this one's really confusing. And if you do want my notes, I, I have all the scriptures with more study reference that I can make available to you. Just let me know, because I understand that this is a lot. In First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 and 47, it says this: So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, and the the last Adam a life-giving spirit. Spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. Jesus is referred to as this, our second Adam. That's what that says. Jesus is our second Adam. What does this mean? You can read it on your own time. I'm going to summarize it for you. The best, one of the best areas to read it is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus gets baptized, and then where does he go? He goes into the desert. He goes into the wilderness where Adam had been kicked out from. Jesus picks up from where Adam left off. And he goes into the wilderness. And what happens there in his 40 days of fasting? Satan comes to him, right? And what does Satan do? He says the word of God to him, but what does he do? He twists it. He even quotes one of the Psalms perfectly right this time, but uses it in the wrong context. But this time, this Adam, this Jesus, how did he respond? The scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy each time. It's a, I, I can't prove it. It's purely hypothetical. But I believe in the 40 days when Jesus was sitting out there, I believe he was studying and reading Deuteronomy. When, when Satan comes to him to tempt him and he throws the word of God in his face and he manipulates it and he changes it and he tells him lies about it, what does Jesus do? He responds with scripture spoken correctly. And he does not fall. He does not give in to the lie. And he wins. Some of you guys need to know this. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, it says this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of Lord Jesus be with you. Because here's the thing. Is people tell me all the time right now that spiritual warfare doesn't happen. That, that these kinds of things don't happen anymore. But yet I sit in my office every week and I have a line of people coming in who are telling me how horrible their life is. What's going on? And, and, and here's how it usually goes. They say things like, they tell me I'm not good enough. They told me that, that I'm not smart enough. They told me that I'm too ugly. They told me I should do this. And usually I'll ask them and I'll say, who told you this? And they have no idea. They've bought a lie. How many of us in here today are sitting here and we hear these stories and we can separate them because they seem like they're so long ago and so different from the situation we're in. But yet we're sitting here and we're wrestling with a situation where we're not good enough. People hate us, we think. All these things are going on. I, I, my my, my self-image isn't good enough. I, I need to buy another self-help book because I can't figure it out. I'm not knocking self-help books totally, but... The Bible needs to go first, please. 
Can we just agree on that? That's a really good place to start. How many of us are sitting here today and the enemy's just attacking us? I mean, I have such a great fear for our people, okay? Do you understand that? I have such a great fear that we are just getting attacked and beaten up and we don't even know it. We don't even know who to blame. And so we do it wrong. We blame each other. We hurt each other. We leave each other. The Bible tells us that the battle is not against flesh and blood. It takes place in the spiritual realms. Some of you need to know that hope. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That you have that power. That you can be free from that. That it doesn't need to hold you down. And I know some of you in here today, probably, if you got brought here by a friend and this whole Satan talk thing is really creeping you out, we believe that he is very real, very present, and very scary. And we love you enough to tell you about him. I'll close with this. We need to understand Jesus Christ is our triumphant victor. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers of authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If you think it's that bad, if you're the person who's sitting there saying that God can't do this because it's that bad, I've seen it be that bad, I know it can't exist because it's that bad, guess what? Jesus nailed to the cross. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. He put himself up there for your sins. He took one of the most gruesome, horrific, horrible forms of execution that the world has ever seen. And got beaten and bloody. We studied that on Good Friday. And he took it and turned it into the most beautiful thing the world has ever seen. People say, why are you so obsessed with blood, the blood of Christ? And I say, because it's so beautiful. Because it covers a multitude of sins. Because by that cross I am forgiven. That he took the humiliation and what Satan literally thought he was using against him. What Satan thought like that he was being mocked, that God was on a cross, people are spitting on him and yelling at him. And Satan thought that he had just won. Then he turns it into the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. There is no situation that he can't solve. There is no situation that he can't speak into. There is nothing that is too ugly that he can't fix. There is no marriage too broken that he can't reconcile. There is no child that has gone away, that that has fallen away, that he can't bring back to him. There is no such thing. We have the second Adam. Do you realize it? Do you take full advantage of it? 
I want to pray for you guys. We'll worship them. We said uh, a couple weeks ago that we weren't going to try to convince anybody anymore if they believe in Jesus that they need to follow him. I trust that you know it's worthwhile. I trust that you're going to do business with God when we worship and pray here. For those of you who don't know who this God is, but he sounds awfully amazing to you because of the sacrifice that he's given, because he is the second Adam, I ask you to pray with me right now and accept him because he will change your life. Father God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I fall short. I'm sorry about that. I know that I'm re- realistically, I'm, I'm really no better than Adam or Eve. I, I, I know that I would have done the same thing. But you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. And we thank you for that. And we accept that. We believe that it's truth. God, come into my life. Help me live life to the fullest. Not what the world says, but what you say. God, may your will be done in my life. God, I pray for all these Christians in here that just need to be freed by this truth. That they may be attacked and that everything just can seem so down and so, so lost. But we know that you're in the business of restoration, God, and we just thank you for that so much. And God, I pray that for these people in here and for myself, that you will just restore what needs to be restored. God, I repent of everything that I sin in every area that I fall short, God. Whether it be my marriage, if I don't love my wife well enough. God, I trust that you will take care of where I fall short. Please help us. In your name I pray. Amen. If you need prayer, We'll be up front. You come get prayer. The altar's open. Come and kneel. Come and sing. Um, there is no service after this one. You can stay as long as you'd like. There will be college lunch. Do, do some business with God, please.